Amen. Well, let's pray as we begin. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It's great to be back in third service. So glad you're here. This is, this is wonderful. Um, so we're going to continue in emotionally healthy spirituality. I want to tell you a little bit about my college experience. My wife and I attended Bethel University. Uh, it's an idyllic closed campus in suburban St. Paul. It's situated in the middle of 300 acres of heavily wooded forest beside Lake Valentine. For me, it's a, it's a perfect, sweet little pastoral place. Not only that, but being that many of the students choose Bethel because of the overt focus on faith in Jesus Christ, it's not only a beautiful campus, but the students at Bethel tend to be incredibly nice people. And not only are they generally nice in the sense that people are generally nice, but many of them are also from Minnesota. And if you know anything about Minnesotans, they are hardwired by both nature and nurture to be ridiculously nice, even when they're not supposed to be. So all of this adds up to Bethel University being one of the smiliest, kindest, most absurdly happy places that I've ever been to. Now, some people don't like that kind of happiness too much. It's suspicious to them or, or strange to them, but I loved it. It was, it was encouraging and uplifting and inspiring for, for us. It's for this reason that I had a crisis of sorts in my sophomore year of college. I was in the happiest of places, Bethel University, but I, I wasn't doing very well. I wasn't real happy myself. I was stressed out with school. I had overextended in my working hours. My class load was too large, and I was struggling to find balance in pretty much every area of life, and probably most of all, balance in my relationship with God. But the crisis was that I kept telling everyone that I was doing well, not because I was lying, mind you, but because everyone is so stinking nice there that you don't know what else to say. So I'd pass people on my way to work or my way to class, and you would do the typical, hey, how are you? Oh, I'm good. How are you? Good, 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 good. You know that conversation. You know how that goes. I wasn't even thinking about my answer. And I realized that I was being fraudulent. I, I wasn't doing well. So why did I say that? I was doing poorly. I decided that I wanted people to know the real me, so I started leaving an extra 15 minutes everywhere that I went so that I could actually answer their question. And I vowed to honestly answer it whenever I was asked, how are you? Within the first day, I'd had four conversations with people that were more than happy to hear my honest answers, and they even felt freedom to share some of the things that were going on in their lives, and a couple of them even prayed with me. It was amazing. And I felt known by people that I didn't know at all, and a few people that I thought I knew, but apparently I didn't know very well. And since then, I've tried to answer that, that question honestly, how are you? Not because I, I want to be a downer or a drain on people when I'm not doing well, but because I don't like the feeling that people aren't getting the real me. Do you know that feeling? That, that you're with people, you're, you're conversing with them, but you know somewhere deep down that they're not getting the real you. Either you know stuff that's going on that you're not sharing, or you just know there's something not quite right and people aren't getting the real you. I don't like that feeling. I share this because I'm fearful that most of us could use this analogy to talk about our relationship with God. We give him a hurried, unthinking, undisciplined version of ourselves instead of the kind of open and honest relationship that we were created for. 
We're often not aware enough of what's going on underneath, or we know what's going on underneath, and we just don't really want to say it to God. And then God doesn't get the real you. He doesn't get the real me. And I don't like that feeling when God doesn't get the real me, but I stand here and I confess that more days than not, God is not getting the real me. This is so important because when we're aware of who we are, then we have the ability to truly give all of ourselves to God. And those who know themselves and know God, I think they're in line to do extraordinary, earth-shattering kingdom kind of work. Pastor Paul last week looked at King Saul as an example of emotional unhealth, an unaware and undisciplined character who ultimately suffered in his relationship with God and because of his relationship with God. Because it was so poor. If Saul was an iceberg... The 10% that was visible, that was on top, less than 10% there, but the 10% that was visible was, was pretty, looked pretty good. He was the king of Israel. He was the servant of God. Most of the time he said the right things. He was handsome. Scripture tells us that he was tall, strong, and forceful, and had a commanding personality. But the 90% underneath was his undoing. He didn't know himself. His own triggers, his own insecurities, his blind spots, And it ruined him. And he didn't have a deep relationship with God. He didn't really know God. We all have a portion of us that that the world clearly sees. I don't know if it's 10% of you or more or less. But this series, this sermon series is focused on what's going on underneath. If we're aware of what's going on in our whole lives, then we can faithfully live in to the relationship that God desires with us and experience the emotional health that he created us for. David, who we're going to study today, offers a a contrast to Saul because David is aware of the deeper realities that are underneath the surface. And he parlays that emotional health into a victory for Israel and a designation that, that I'm jealous of, and that is a man after God's own heart. Wouldn't that be a great title, a man or a woman after God's own heart? The Bible has a term for our true selves and our false selves. Colossians 3 through 3 9 implores Christians not to live in falsehood with one another, not to live false lives, but to live true lives with one another. Our great, 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 great grandparents are the best example of this Adam and Eve, who are originally living in their full, true selves, not compartmentalized or divided in any way, walking and talking in the garden with God naked and unashamed. But then sin enters their lives and they're cut off in their relationship with God. They're cut off in their relationship with one another. And they're cut off in their relationships to themselves. They become unaware. And we're like our first parents. We tend to be divided within ourselves between these true and false selves. We're we're unsure of who we are and we end up covering who we truly are with layers of fig leaves and oftentimes not even knowing why. We have an opportunity to just accept this as reality. Hey, this is just life. This is how it is. Or we can fight back and push back against it towards God's initial intent. So you might be asking, am I more like Saul or or am I more like David? I don't know if I have good enough assessment skills, Lars, to know which one I am. Am I living into my false self or my true self? Now you've got me scared. Well, here are, are 10 symptoms of false self. And I want you to just look at these and kind of mentally make a, a check on the ones that sound like you. Ten symptoms of a false self. I'm reluctant to admit my weaknesses and flaws to others. 
I look for the approval of others more than I should. I'm highly offendable and defensive when people criticize me. I know offendable is not a word, but I know what it means because I feel that sometimes, right? I often become harsh and impatient when things are moving too slowly or my expectations are not met. I say yes when I would rather say no. I beat myself up when I make mistakes. I have difficulty speaking up when I disagree or prefer something different. I have a number of people that I'm struggling to forgive right now. My fears often cause me to play it safe just in case. And number 10, my body is more often in a state of tension and stress than it is relaxed. Now let me remind you, this is, this is a continuum. We all live into our false selves in, in some way or another. That's the reality of living in a sinful and broken world. So if you're going, no, I'm doing good in all 10 of these, you're probably doing really poorly and we should probably talk. We are all in process here, and, and I'm, I'm putting myself at the front of the line. Now, if you identify with maybe two or three of these statements, yeah, you live into your false selves at times, and there are things that you could work on. If you check maybe four or five mentally, you probably have a moderate case of pretending to be somebody that you're not. And if you checked six, seven, or more, I want you to receive this as a gentle wake-up call that you've got work to do, and you need a deeper journey with Jesus, and what a great place to start. So what does it look like? We, we see the symptoms of false self. What does it look like to live into our true selves? What's the, what's the converse of this? The Bible provides an example. David is a shepherd boy in this story of David and Goliath, maybe 15 years old. In contrast, Goliath is a, is a nine-foot-tall giant with a coat of armor that weighs 125 pounds, probably more than David weighs, his armor weighs. And he's got a spear that's designed to kill from long-distance range and a large rectangular shield for anything that comes at him. David was just a simple shepherd, a messenger for his brothers, while Goliath had years of experience, and, and especially experience ridiculing Israel. In fact, our text tells us that for 40 straight days, morning and evening, that he spat in the face of God. He ridiculed the people of Israel, taunted them. This is the situation that David faces. And we get a sense of how healthy David already is at the beginning of this. Verse 23 as he talked with them, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. And all the Israelites, when they saw this man, they fled from him, and they were very much afraid. To verse 26, Then David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine? And takes away the reproach from Israel. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? It's clear that David is already in a place where he, he knows himself and he knows the God that he serves. David's part in Goliath's story, I think, is, is it's really a story of a young man who resists the urge to wear things that do not fit him. Let me say it again. I think David's part in this story is that it's really a story of a young man who resists the urge to wear things that do not fit him. And in a way that he does that, it, it gives us a path forward toward knowing ourselves so that we might know God. Three things that I think David is fitted with that do not fit him. Uh, and I think there, I want to walk you through these and I want to also say that I think these are often things that are ill-fitting for us as well and, and we must cut through them. First of all, 
The message that David received from his family did not fit him. The message he received from his family did not fit him. Verse 28, his eldest brother Eliab heard him talking to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. He said, why have you come down? Any of you younger, have an older brother? Do you know how this, I'm a youngest, there you go, my, my, my guy. You know how older brothers can be. Why have you come down here? Why have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know the presumption and the evil in your heart. You come down here just to see the battle, you scrawny little. And David said, what have I done now? I just asked a question, what did I do? He turned away toward, toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. Here's David. He's the youngest of eight brothers. Three, the three oldest are in the army at this time. And we get a sense of what David's relationship was with his brothers from this passage. He was the object of, of anger. He's misunderstood. He's ignored. He's put down. He's disregarded. And the message is really clear from this passage. You are useless here. Go home. You're useless here, David. Just go, just go home. Get out of here. You have, you have no use here. What I want to say is, is our families, even the best of families, add layers of, of false self that can smother the true self that God calls us to. So let me ask a difficult question. Are there narratives from your family of origin that add layers of false self to who you are? Some of those narratives can be uh, more overt. I know there are some of you right now who, who, who if in a moment of, of courage, would go, oh yeah, I know, I know that narrative. I live with it every day. Um, some of you know that. And, and they might be things like, I'm only lovable enough and good enough if I marry the right person or get a high-paying job or look a certain way or say the right things or, or fulfill my parents' dreams or my life or behave in a certain way. Some are overt. Many of the narratives that we have from our family that we need to shed are not overt. Let me give you an example from my life. When I started seminary at North Park, I was, I was nervous, and it, it was an emotion that caught me off guard. See, I was born and raised in this denomination in the, in the Covenant Church and grew up in the long shadow of, of numerous pastors and administrators in, in this denomination. The names that I come from, Stromberg and Hawkinson, mean something to the very small group of people who really care about Covenant history. And now... I'm fairly certain, in my memory, I can't think of it, I'm fairly certain that my grandpa never said anything like, hey, make sure you do well by our name for the sake of our family. I don't ever remember him saying anything like that. I can guarantee you that my dad never said anything like that. But nonetheless, I felt a weighty shadow that was cast over me as I walked into orientation to begin my, my formal training as a pastor. And I'll never forget my pastoral theology professor, Richard Carlson, wonderful man, who pulled me aside in that first day and said, you know what, Lars, we love your great-grandpa. Look, he's up here on the wall. He, he was literally on a picture on the wall. We loved him, and man, we love your grandpa and your grandma and your aunts and your uncles and your dad and your mom. We love your family, but we're just glad that you're here. It was only at that moment that I realized that I'd been operating under a family of origin narrative that I, I'd never even heard verbalized, but I'd picked up on somehow. You are responsible to bear your name well in the sight of others. And Richard's words were like a friend exposing the iceberg for me, peeling away a layer of false self that, that wasn't true and that I have hardly thought about since. 
David has a family narrative that he was receiving forcefully, much more overt. But it didn't undo him. He resisted that narrative and he stood, um, he stood and, and faced that obstacle that was in front of him. And my guess is that most of us here need to, need to do the same with some narratives that our family has sent to us. Some of them, uh, some of you need to do just a, a little bit of work to become more aware of that. Some of you, it needs to be more serious work. The second thing that didn't fit David, common, sensible wisdom did not fit David. Look at verse 32 and 33. David said to Saul, Let no one's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight Goliath the Philistine. And Saul said to David, You're not able to go against the Philistine and fight with him, for you're just a boy. And he's been a warrior from his youth. Now let's remember, Saul is king. He's an experienced military leader. He's, he's, he's led an army of 330,000 men into battle and been victorious. He was famously known. So when he says, hey, you can't do this, you're just a boy, we would think that this 15-year-old shepherd might go, yes, sir. I mean, I, I would, right? If, I was in a situ- if I'm in my situation in front of someone like that, I would go, hey, you're the expert. You're, you tell me what to do. You're the expert. But David doesn't do that. Instead, he explains how God has shown himself before how he's fought off bears and and lions in his life as a shepherd and how God is going to deliver the giant Goliath in the same way. Saul relents, but then he he seeks to equip him for the battle in the common, sensible, normal way of how you do that. You give someone armor and you you give them a sword and you outfit them for battle. And the text tells us, but after, after David tried it on, he, he realized, I can't, these things don't fit me. I can't walk. I, these things don't fit me. It just doesn't fit me. Sorry. Think about when my dad was an um, art student in college and he had a professor towards the end of his college say, I just need to tell you, you're never going to be a great artist because all great art comes from pain and suffering and you're just such a happy person. You should, you should find a profession where you can just be happy, okay? Just do something, do some, you know, do something that would make people happy. And that was really sound advice from someone who's an expert in that field. And he's not wrong because pretty much every great artist is a tortured soul. Go back and look through history, it's true. But my dad himself, he, he, he knew his own spirit, he knew himself enough to know that that advice did not fit him. And he, he's made a brilliant career out of creating all sorts of great art in many crazy forms. But it all comes from a place of joy and wonder. Now, I'm not suggesting that you should make a practice of just throwing away good advice from from people who are experts in their field. But the key is that David knew himself well enough to know when advice did not fit him personally. He was able to say, what you are suggesting for me, I'm hearing it, but it's just not, I'm sorry, it just doesn't fit me. We ought to examine all such advice that we, we get against a deep understanding of ourselves and who God created us to be. And maybe some of you are operating under advice that you've received from people that you knew didn't fit, but you took it because you didn't want to stand up to it. We need to know ourselves well enough to know when things don't fit. Third, the fear of failure doesn't seem to fit David. The Philistine came and drew near to God. He had a shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and handsome in nature. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And he, and he cursed David by his gods. This third obstacle is a fairly obvious one. He's got a large soldier standing in front of him that he should be afraid of. By any measurable, he should be fearful of this 
of this warrior Goliath. His faith was really being put to the test, and he knew that if I fail this test, I'm dead. This should cause you to be fearful. But the false self backs away in moments like this, realizes that there must be a safer tactic, gives in to fear, but David never wavers in his faith in God, and he faces Goliath head on. The text doesn't tell us whether David was afraid or not, but we know from the context of this text that he feared not obeying God more than he feared the soldier that was standing in front of him. Three things that don't fit. The family narrative, the advice that goes against what we know about ourselves, and the fear of failure and loss. David overcomes them all. And he does so because he's guided from the inside, from a robust relationship with God instead of an external authority. And since God is getting all of him, the real David, David is able to resist that which doesn't fit him with great integrity. He pushes past the family narrative, you're useless here, go home. And instead he agrees to fight Goliath. He respectfully passes on the advice that doesn't seem to fit him and he sheds the armor and the sword and instead he grabs five smooth stones and a slingshot because that's who he is. He faces fear with great faith and trust in God more than he fears Goliath. In all these things, he is victorious. David is is a model of emotional health because he starts from a really simple place and I'm more and more convinced every time I say this to you that this is the most important thing you'll ever hear from me or have ever heard from me. Here's where David starts, and I'm going to tell you the same. Tell yourself all day, every day, that you are a child of God. Remind yourself all day, every day, that you are a child of God. That's what David did. He was not dependent on doing this battle the right way in order to be accepted or loved. He wasn't doing it out of guilt or sorrow for the, for the nation of Israel. David wasn't doing it to keep peace or to avoid conflict. He, was, he wasn't doing it so that people would think well of him or that he could seize that 15 minutes of fame and have a great name. No, he was resting in his identity, his true self. He was operating in the knowledge that he was a child of the living God. And in the long run, if we can't get to this point where we realize that we're a child of God, then we end up hurting those we love and others around us because we can't be fully true to ourselves. We can't live into the real self that God calls us to be. But when we know ourselves and we know God, we bless those around us and we find victory and we glorify God. But maybe for you, the the giants of family narrative and ill-fitting apparel that's put on by others and the fear of failure, those are obstacles that are too big for you. And I know that some of you face those obstacles in ways that I will never understand in your lives. I mean, David and Goliath happened a long time ago. David's kind of this perfect character. Is it really, I mean, is he just a singularly great character of faith? I mean, is it even fair to try and emulate him? No, David is merely a forerunner. He's pointing to Jesus, the ultimate savior and warrior and deliverer, the perfect example of true self in full operation, fully integrated. Do you realize that Jesus shed a family narrative? What, what good, I mean, really, what good, what good has come out of Nazareth? Please. Do you realize that he shed those things that were ill-fitting for him, the advice that he had gotten? Come, come on, Jesus. Come as a warrior with a, with a flaming sword and, and smite our enemies and take your throne in Jerusalem instead. How does he come? He comes in weakness and humility 
And he, and he embraces the weakness of the cross to lead to new life. He does not give in to fear, but embraces trust in his Father. All because he never loses sight of who he is. I'm a child of the living God. He goes out as an army of one and defeats the giants of sin and death. And because Jesus has done this for you, you can go and face the giants of this world, of your life. But I'm here to tell you, you will never succeed if God is not getting the real you. Remember, David started from a place of deep relationship with God. Know yourself and know God, and Jesus' victory is yours. There's not a giant that can stand in the face of those who know God and know themselves because you are God's child. And Jesus, the one who has conquered all things, fights for you. I have a prayer up on the screen. I'd like for us in closing to pray together. If you're not ready to pray this prayer today, that's okay. You can just let these words wash over you. Let's pray. Lord, we are your children And you are our God. Thank you for fearfully and wonderfully making us. Forgive, Lord, when we choose the false selves put upon us rather than the true self that you have so graciously given us. Lead us into deeper awareness of who we are and who you are so that we might have trust like David and faith like Jesus. Our heart is to know you and live for you. Amen. Amen.